You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Steamheart. Chapter 37. Alone. From the Journal of Abigail Gray. Mississippi, July 22nd, 1883. We lie and wait. The people of Green Hollow feed us bread and water. Nobody is directly harmed, just as our captors promised. But the way they look at us, that contempt and the nasty glint in the eyes of the men. I am riven with worry over what will happen if James fails to get through. Butler, Pines, and Raven will be in shallow graves before the end of whichever day they abandon the premise of negotiating with the government. But Harry and I will be in a world of hurt. I think of how I will actually react. I know I will fight, but I cannot envision any way of protecting myself or her that does not get us both shot at best. I'd rather go out that way than endure what they have in store. But how can I possibly ask Harry to choose? What words can sum up the nightmare we're faced with? It feels like a few days ago I would have found breaking this to her somewhat easier. But not anymore. Things are different for me now. At my first dawn in the cell, with no lookout nearby, I root into my jacket and retrieve something shiny and silver. I place it beside Butler's face. It is a little star necklace which Annie was wearing. I know it was a gift from him, and I couldn't put it in the ground with her body. Butler opens his eyes at the movement and sees my face, sorrowful and pitying. He glances at the necklace and does not move. Eventually, when someone approaches, I snatch it back and pocket the precious talisman for later. I get to talking with Harry and Raven. We discuss what happened at Briar Hill and turn over the details, attempting to make head or tail of what Krieger and Greta may have been trying to tell us. Harry made me go through the location and closing of every wind door, searching for what it was that might be eluding James in the harnessing of that endowment of his. Okay. Were they all near water? Harry asked. No. Wait, the one in Krieger's study definitely wasn't. That one up in the air in Missouri certainly wasn't. Maybe maybe it depends on the time of day. What have they all got in common? Ironically, the one person who could help us with this would be James, I said dryly. I'm real good at remembering things, but he's perfect at it. I hope we see him again, too, muttered Raven. Sharp little bastard was starting to grow on me. James. I reached the environs of Vicksburg by nightfall, and as my mare limped her last few steps, I dismounted and rushed to the front gates, looking for Captain Joyce. Throughout this traversal, my mind was picking over the similar journey Annie took last October, away from Briar Hill, to bring Abigail and I help. She had succeeded where others would fail, and I could do nothing less. Joyce wanted to know about Henry Jackson and the men sent to protect us. 
I recounted the events of the past few weeks and his face fell. When he realized the gravity of what had befallen us, he marched me right to Carmen Santos at the telegraph point. I was to directly inform Washington of this situation. After I had done so, I was told to sleep. I would be woken when the response came through. At dawn's first light, Carmen shook me and handed me a simple order. Penrose, stop. Remain at Vicksburg, stop. Additional reinforcements are mobilizing, stop. Prepare the troops of the garrison and await further notification, stop. White, stop. Miguel, it is yesterday. We are waiting for James, Abigail, Frank and Annie to emerge from this mansion. I am getting very nervous. Harry and I sit in the rear car and I tell her something about this town disturbs me. I tell her I would like to investigate. She is not sure if that is allowed. I promise I will not be seen. She closes the compartment hatch and removes a floor panel. Beneath is a trapdoor with a bolted handle. She opens it for me and I can smell the air beneath Steamheart. She tells me she will quietly inform Raven and Jeremy and that they will say I am asleep back here until I return. I take my bag and before I go she embraces me and tells me to take care. I say I will. I drop down and survey the street, peeking up at the rooftops for sentries, working out from my prone position where their blind spots will be, even in broad daylight. I scurry away and sneak around the back of the mansion, hearing faint sounds of a struggle. Climbing to the first floor, I can hear Abigail fighting, and then move across to help her. As I peer through the slats on the window shutters, I can see the now dead man on the floor and Abigail talking to many women. They are all with child and are fastened to the beds. It is further yesterday. I am looking at the cats chained into bunks on the slave ship. I recognize this as the same. These people are slavers. Abigail rushes from the room as gunshots sound. I am unable to help. I climb higher and get onto the roof, keeping low to avoid being seen, and observe the standoff that ensues in the town square. Then Annie, James, and Abigail are gone, and Steamheart is surrounded. I remain in place as the day goes on, terrified to move, more so that my absence will be discovered. Then my friends are dragged from Steamheart, and it is blown to pieces. The sound of the death of that machine will never leave me. I lie panting, frozen in place. They are taken away, and I am the last one left. What would Harau do? If she were in my place, I have no answer, because I am not a tiger. Night falls. I creep down from the roof, my limbs stiff and unreliable from lying still for so long. Nobody is looking for me. I weave through the town, peeking in our windows, trying to understand these people. I see a woman crying. The man she is with forces her head down onto the countertop and says horrible things into her ear. I cannot help it. 
have to move myself on before I do something terrible. I see children, boys of my age and younger, taking apart their rifles and reassembling them. They salute their fathers, and when they are tucked into bed, the gun is beside them. I see a young girl in her bedroom, angry with her doll. She berates it and hits the toy in the face, warning it never to disobey her. I see young boys of dark skin being kicked and whipped, the flesh torn from their backs as they scream into the night. I see the sisters of those boys being gripped by white men, pushed down onto beds, their clothing ripped away. I see the same thing happening to women and children of Mexico, of China, of places I could not name. I see whole families gathered around a crucifix, their battered slaves kneeling alongside them, all praying to the Lord. I grip the rosary around my neck, the one which belonged to my abuelita. The tears stream down my face. This could never be what he wants. I hear a noise as a stalking boy on sentry duty nears my position. I dart away, my heart pounding in fear, climb onto a low rooftop, leap up the stockade wall, and vault over, lowering myself down in stages until my feet touch earth. I am free. But my friends are not. It is yesterday. I cross to the nearby forest, riddled with shame. I sleep there all night, curled in the branches of the tallest tree I can find, desperately wishing for my mother and feeling overwhelming sorrow and anger. I am terrified that these woods are filled with Nahual and my ears twitch at every snapped twig. I try to remember their scent and perhaps catch it before they find me. But the surrounding trees are musky and the air is humid. Too many smells to parse out a single one with my human nose. As the sun rises, I can look in on the town and see them going about their day. I watch them work the fields. I watch them hunt. I start to memorize the buildings and look at which ones I can climb, which ones would provide a hiding spot. I want to do something, but I do not know what, yet. In the afternoon, Abigail arrives with the mayor's wife. I am, to begin with, filled with joy that she is alive. But I realize part of that is relief that someone else can take this terrible burden, the responsibility of action away from me. I hold back on making myself known and watch their discussion, though I cannot hear it. Eventually, Abigail throws down her gun and is led away. I am crestfallen, and once again that responsibility lies with me. But as I watch her, I spy the building she is taken to and the bars on its windows. If I am supremely lucky, the rest of the crew of Steamheart will have been brought there too. I have to save them. But for these I will need a few things. I hunt for snakes. I find rattlers fairly easily, 
listening for the telltale sounds and following their trails the way Hrau showed me with the serpents of her world. Cottonmouths and copperheads are easy to locate, but I find one of each, swooping in lightly to grip them just behind the head, milking their venom into the vials I keep in my leather bracer. After this, I cut their heads away and save the bodies. The last find is a vividly red, yellow, and black striped eastern coral snake. This one is absolutely deadly, and I cannot make any mistakes. Its yellow poison fills my last vial, and I dispatch it swiftly. The process takes me two more todays. I need this time to learn the layout of Green Hollow. On my second night, I creep around the perimeter wall. Frustratingly, their lookout points do not seem to be regimented. They are different every night and seemingly placed at random. This is where my enemies being rigidly ordered would help me. Whilst in the forest, I strip and clean the snakes I have caught, separating the flesh from their tiny bones and chewing it down. I need strength, and it is most appropriate that I gain it from the animal that must guide my spirit tonight. On the fourth night, I go down by the stream and find the dark mud, daubing it all over my face and arms, rubbing it into my shirt until I stand motionless and invisible among the trees. I pull on my wooden mongoose mask, eliminating the boy underneath. I do not want to take another life. My first murder lives in my heart and hurts me to think of. But I cannot let my companions, who have pledged to look after me, remain with these beasts of men. It is time. afternoon of my stay at Vicksburg, a strange new sound filled the air. I went out to get a better look along with Captain Joyce and saw, up in the sky, a great elongated balloon, like something from the mind of Verne or Da Vinci. It was so much larger and grander than a hot air balloon, and underneath, in place of a basket, between hanging fuel pods and enormous whirring fans, was a windowed gondola. The RSA flag was emblazoned on the side of the balloon, and I found myself cheering that we had this new marvel at our disposal. I would later find that it was named Thundercloud. We trooped down to the nearby grassy field as it landed, and many soldiers emerged. In front of the regular enlisted blues were a group dressed entirely in black, which Major Butler and Harry had described to me as silent company from their deployment at the Battle of Washington. Then I saw people I recognized emerging. First came Tesla and Edison, the latter beaming over at me and pointing up at the machine he was clearly claiming total credit for. Beside them was Agent Lee, whom I remembered from the April Ball, clad in similar black garb as the special troops. I searched in vain for Catherine. She must have remained back at RSA headquarters. But how was this possible? I had only communicated with Langley via telegraph two nights ago, 
This machine had covered a thousand miles in a day. However, at the spear point of the procession, stalking towards me, wearing what I recognized as Harry's armored scorpion suit, repainted and hung about with throwing knives, and a sheathed katana, a hood up over a striking mask, was a man I knew immediately as Mr. White. He exuded a powerful air of authority, moving with the grace of a panther, but also an unnerving determination that had the hairs on the back of my neck prickling. He stopped in front of me and I could feel myself retreating inside, though my feet did not move. I immediately checked over my recent actions to ascertain if I had done anything wrong. I had been so sure that leaving Abigail behind was the absolute best option available to us. That assurance was like a slippery rope now, and I gripped onto it for dear life. White spoke, his voice sonorous like great bronze bells in a storm, with an exotic accent I could not place. Dr. Penrose, we meet at last. I wish I could say it's my pleasure, but it would make me a filthy liar. I shifted uncomfortably at this. His piercing eyes flashed beneath the mask. As I understand it, your appointed mission has been fucked into oblivion, and you would like some help in retrieving it from the abyss. That is correct, I replied, saluting. And your aid is appreciated. Who do you know to be alive aside from you? At this stage, sir, everyone may be dead, I reasoned. We must rescue who is left. Then ready yourself to journey back out through this putrescent swamp. Be sure it does not drag you under. been listening to episode 37 of Steamheart, Alone, written and directed by Alexander Shaw, Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw, James Penrose, Raven, Miguel, and Mr. White, performed by Alex Shaw, Harry Arlington, performed by Loretta Saylor, Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound, Agent in Shanghai by 1M1 Music of Shockwave Sound. Peace for Disaffected Piano, Tempting Secrets, Morning Song, Descent, and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes, including Swamplandia by Tabletop Audio. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Brian Novak, John Clayson, Tyler Long, Adam Kilmartin, Joe Gazika, Greg Downing, Tim Wazinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Essman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Youngius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler and Lorraine Chisholm.